Welcome to the Sports Talks Podcast with Dr. Ashley Bassett and Dr. Katherine Logan. On each episode, we chat about the most recent developments in sports medicine and dissect through all the noise so you know which literature should actually impact your practice. On today's episode, we're focusing on meniscus tears with Dr. Elizabeth Matskin, orthopedic surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Chief of Women's Sports Medicine. We have some great articles for you today that really contribute well to this conversation on how to best manage various types of meniscus tears across different age groups. As always, links to the articles we discuss on the show can be found on our podcast website. The first paper is from the April issue of AJSM, titled Long-Term National Trends of Arthroscopic Meniscal Repair and Debridement. It's a descriptive epidemiologic study specifically looking at ABOS case collections. For our listeners that may not know what that means, orthopedic surgeons in their first year of practice are required to prospectively record their cases over a six-month period and submit those to the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery for evaluation. So this data is thought to be a good surrogate for the current state of orthopedic education and can highlight the newest shifts in treatment. Wasserberger et al. found that over the past 10 years, the rate of meniscus debridement has steadily decreased, while the rate of meniscus repair has increased. Younger patient age and treatment by a sports medicine surgeon were associated with a higher likelihood of repair. We then focused specifically on meniscus root tears in the review of the publication Outcomes of Arthroscopic All-Inside Repair versus Observation in Older Adults with Meniscal Root Tears from the April 2020 issue of AJSM. Dragu and colleagues at Stanford described their technique for all-inside meniscus root repair using a side-to-side reduction suture between the posterior horn and the remaining posterior root tissue, followed by a mattress suture to tether the meniscus to the posterior capsule, thereby reinforcing the repair. The authors showed improved functional outcomes and decreased rate of total knee replacement compared to non-op treatment of root tears in patients with moderate arthritis. We're very excited to have Dr. Elizabeth Matskin join our discussion today. Dr. Matskin specializes in sports medicine, knee, and shoulder surgery. She's an attending surgeon and chief of women's sports medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Matskin earned her MD from Tulane Medical School. She completed her orthopedic residency at the University of Hawaii and then went on to complete a fellowship in sports medicine at Duke. Dr. Matson currently serves as a team physician for the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, U.S. Paralympic Soccer Team, U.S. Women's National Hockey Team, and is the head team physician of Stonehill College. She is passionate about the care of female athletes and has dedicated much of her research to focusing on sex differences in musculoskeletal medicine. Welcome to the show, Dr. Matskin. We're going to start our discussion um, with the initial management of meniscal tears. Um, So we know a lot of these tears that can be handled uh, successfully without surgery. So the first thing we wanted to touch upon was what's your approach to non-operative treatment of meniscus tears? You know, like, do you inject? Do you send them to PT? Do you give them a home exercise program? Do you brace? You know, and what, what do you think is best in that scenario? So it really depends when these patients present to me. If they present acutely with what I think is a meniscus tear, we'll start with activity modification, ice, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, usually physical therapy. Um, And then if they've been out a few weeks and they're really struggling with an effusion and significant pain, I would consider an injection. But for all of these patients, I try to give them a minimum of six to eight weeks to see if that meniscus tear is going to declare itself and become less symptomatic. Well, um, 
So on the flip side of that, um, you know, some meniscus tears, when they present immediately, they, they do require more timely surgery, um, you know, like flipped meniscus tears, locked knees, all of that. So um, what are your indications to take a patient to the OR without that non-operative treatment we discussed? And a question I'm always asking myself is, you know, does patient preference ever play a role? I'll have patients come in and say, listen, I don't want to do this six weeks of non-operative treatment, just like clean out my knee so I can get back to playing golf. Like, I don't want to waste time. Like, does patient preference ever play a role with regards to that? Are you pretty strict on that? What are your thoughts? So I think um, with regards to a patient, especially a younger patient that I'm worried about a bucket handle or a flip meniscal tear, in those patients, we may jump to an MRI sooner. Um, certainly in my Division One, my college athletes or any amateur athletes will get an MRI a lot quicker to see what's going on um, and to see if we need to acutely go after something. But for the degenerative tears and the patients who are over the age of 35, 40, I certainly try and give them some time. For a lot of patients who have had a meniscal tear in their left knee and come now with a right knee with the exact same symptoms, they often are like, I know what I've got. I know what it feels like. And so, you know, I'll still try and tell them to give it a little bit of time. But while I buy some time, we'll get the MRI and start to work them up and, you know, kind of see where they go with it. How much are you injecting, do you think, versus just doing PT? So, you know, um, there are some very good trials that have come out of the Harvard program uh, looking at physical therapy and outcomes. And so, I try for my patients that aren't really exercising on their own, I try to get them into physical therapy to work on hip flexor, abductor, quad strengthening. For the patients that, you know, are normally doing strengthening and working out and they run and they bike and they're, you know, doing CrossFit, I'm not so sure that physical therapy is as beneficial in their regimen and routine. Um, so I do try and get the patients, though, that aren't exercising to start with that. And as for injections, it really just depends on, probably it's my patients that have early OA, um, they have a degenerative tear, the ones that I think may have a good chance of, if, you know, we quiet down the inflammation in their knee, they may get back to their baseline, which probably wasn't perfect to begin with. Are you finding, like, so the Wasserberger article found that there was, like, an increased rate of repairs um, over the last decade. At, you know, we're being more aggressive with doing our repairs, knowing that even though those could fail as well. Um, you know, do you find that you're also having an increased rate of repairs? And also, like, you know, how are you making this determination? Do you talk a lot about it in pre-op? You know, is it just um, an intra-op decision? Like, how do you go about all that? I think a lot of the tears that are reparable, you can determine preoperatively via their presentation, perhaps their mechanism of injury, and their MRI. Um, for the tears that I'm worried about, a root tear or a vertical tear that may be reparable, it's certainly a discussion I have with the patients preoperatively that if I get in there and this is reparable, uh, that's a good thing. We'll repair it for you, but you will wake up with a brace and a very different rehab if it was just a partial meniscectomy. Um, I think over the last 10 years, our ability to repair torn menisci, you know, the instruments we have and the techniques we have have certainly improved. Um, I certainly repair a lot more root tears than I had 10 plus years ago. Um, and I think just, you know, identifying, you know, ramp lesions and these meniscal capsular junction tears have, you know, our ability to identify them and then address them, I think, has improved. 
Do you feel like you have uh, an age cutoff or any hard stops um, for not repairing a meniscus tear? Like just recently, I saw a person um, who was more on the older spectrum, like late 60s, with what looked like a peripheral tear. Um, And so those are, and usually they're degenerative, they're complex, they're frayed. But when you have someone with a clear-cut peripheral tear, but they're older or they're an active smoker, is there anything that would make you say, I'm not doing that repair? Um, Or would you give it a chance? So, I mean, I think when we think about age, we can talk about chronologic age or we can talk about physiologic or biologic age. So a 60-year-old with a good-looking knee, when I get in there, not any significant degenerative changes in what appears to be a healthy meniscus with potentially good blood supply, I think it'd be fine to go ahead and repair it. Um, And a 60-year-old with grade 3 cartilage changes and a really kind of degenerative looking meniscal tear that's starting to look a little yellowed from you know not being so healthy I'm not so sure that's going to heal I probably would not take the chance and try and repair something like that um, when we're talking about a longitudinal or vertical tear Um, with regards to smokers I think that's a really good question we actually published a study looking at partial meniscectomies in smokers versus non-smokers and demonstrated that Smokers kind of start out at a lower baseline level and end at a lower level after surgery, but they improve about the same amount. Um, Now, that was with partial meniscectomies. I haven't seen a very good study looking at repair in smokers versus non-smokers, but, you know, given what we know in the current literature, I would suspect that their healing potential is not quite as good. Uh, So a young, young person... You know, again, an excellent looking knee with very good blood supply, probably still give them a chance. But someone who's older and a smoker, I'm not so sure that's going to heal. So can you talk a little bit about the meniscectomy paper more? So what what kind of um, outcomes did you guys look at? So we looked at um, patient reported outcome measures to include BAS, BR12, COOS, and Mark's activity, and we followed them out for two years post-operatively, and we looked at a group of smokers and non-smokers, and, um, you know, smoking basically negatively affects your patient-reported outcomes after partial meniscectomy, even though they improve with the same amount. They just start at a lower baseline, so that's, they kind of end up there when all is said and done. Okay. Interesting. And you brought up um, the root tears. So that was, you know, kind of what we wanted to delve into next. So obviously we're all getting better at identifying them um, intraoperatively, but I also, I think, you know, on the MRIs, um, you know, the radiologists are also more skilled at identifying them as well. So when you um, have identified either a partial or a full root tear, um, you know, how do you decide how you're going to repair it? You know, are you doing, um, so like Dragood posted or, published a, a side-by-side. Um, Laprade obviously has this two-tunnel technique. Um, and then we can also do single-tunnel technique. You know, there's a bunch of different options now. And, you know, how do you go about that? So I think first and foremost, it's recognizing it. And um, I do think often on the MRIs, you start to see this kind of fuzziness at the root. But sometimes I think it's really hard to know if it's definitely torn or not. I mean, some you can 100% tell and those are easier. The ones that look like a partial root tear, it's a discussion I'll have with the patient. You know, your tear looks very close to the root. If the root is torn, this needs to be repaired. Um, 
And I have that discussion mostly because a root repair is a much longer rehab than if it ends up being just a partial meniscectomy with a small radial tear that's just very close to the root. Um, most of the time I'll do a root repair transtibial um, for a couple reasons. Is One, I think that the tunnels bring in some of the good healing potential when we you know, drill into the bone. So I'll use a transtibial technique with a guide. Um, I think, you know, I think when we start talking about these, having a toolbox for repairs is really important. Um, you know, some knees are much harder to get back to that root than others. And so there are, you know, several different guides. There's some systems that have left and right guides and some that have a universal, some that have a particular root guide. But I think being familiar with all of them can help when you're in a tight knee or a, just an awkward knee or whatever it may be. Some guides just get back there a little bit easier than others. Um, I'll usually pass two luggage tag sutures through the root and I'll pull them down through my tibial tunnel. And fixation on the tibial side, um, often either a button, I'll tie it over a button or I'll use an anchor or a swivel lock to lock those down. Do you ever change your surgical technique if you're doing like a multi-leg or you're doing it with an ACL? Um, I've heard of people bringing it into the kind of the ACL tunnel and tensioning both together. Um, I've heard of some people doing like an all-inside repair when you're doing the ACL to avoid that tunnel. Um, do you do the same technique or do you, um, do you ever change it if you're doing um, maybe a procedure that requires a lot more tunnels or a lot more things going on? So yeah, I think anytime you're doing multi-ligament is anything you need to think about your tunnels. So with regards to doing an all-inside repair, I mean, it takes a very specific type of root tear, right, to have enough tissue that you can do an all-inside. Sometimes, especially, I think, with concomitant injuries, they really tear that entire root up, and there's not any root left to do that side-to-side -side repair. Uh, I think it's, you know, something to have in your toolbox. I think the other thing with that is you have to have really good meniscal tissue in order for that to hold. Um and then with regards to, you know, if I can't do a side-to-side -side repair and I still need to make a tunnel, I mean, I just, I think about my ACL tunnel, where that's going, or I'll make that first so I can avoid it with my root. Um, and it also just depends, and some of those, those are often younger patients, if they have a concomitant ACL or in uh, a root, if it's medial or lateral, it can be easier to avoid, you know, and not have that overlap. I've never used the same tunnel. Um, I've always made it, I mean, usually I'll drill up with a four millimeter um, drill. So it's this pretty small tunnel for the roots. Something that I thought was interesting, just that I, um, when we were at the Women in Sports uh, Medicine Conference in Naples recently that someone shared that I thought was very cool is that when they were tensioning their meniscus root tears, because I don't know about you, Catherine, but I was always wondering, you know, what do I tension it in? Is it 90? Is it 30? Like, what am I, where am I positioning the knee when I'm doing the tensioning? Um, and they had mentioned that they pull it over and they watch the reduction and they mark it on the suture. And then that's how hard they know to pull, because this isn't oftentimes the best quality tissue. Oftentimes, if you yank too hard, you can pull those sutures right out of that meniscus tissue and I thought that was a really um, interesting way of, uh, of approaching it so you're not pulling too hard but you don't have to watch it directly especially if you're doing it in full extension um, you can mark it and then do that so I thought that was very interesting 
do you recall, or maybe you not you don't know Ashley, but did they um, say they were doing it with like a swivel lock, or they were doing a button? They were doing a swivel lock. Um, this okay. person who was describing that um, was pulling it and was basically marking the sutures where it exited the transosseous tunnel, so that when they pulled it, they were watching it at the tunnel, but then also putting it into the the swivel lock. And I just thought, wow, that's that's such a great idea because um, sometimes I'm I'm pulling so hard, but you can really rip it right out of of that tissue. So I found that to be very interesting. Yeah, I had a tricky one recently where they actually had um, like a posterior lateral tibial plateau fracture as well as a full avulsion. So they were only down about a millimeter and a half. You know, it wasn't something that you were going to go in and tamp up. Um, but it was tricky, you know, sort of thinking like, all right, you're like you're kind of already in a lowered sort of position. So to get the um, not only the guide, but just like getting your camera in position because you're kind of like up, going up and over a hill almost. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm curious, like, if you would have done anything differently in that scenario, either of you. That's interesting. I mean, I think there's always an option to make a poster medial portal to put a camera in the back if you feel like it would be helpful mm-hmm. to look from the back. Um, I don't routinely do that, but I think, you know, an option if you need to get back there and kind of see what's going on with that route. Yeah, it was interesting. I really could only, I had to go through the notch to be able to see it. You know, like I wasn't really able to get a normal view through the compartment because you just sort of felt like it was going over a ledge. Um, so that was really the only way to get back there. But I think you're right. You know, a posterior portal could have worked as well. But it's kind of interesting. That is, yeah. Um, Ashley, do you guys have um, the one thing I was thinking about earlier was, um, are you guys at all particular about where you send for MRIs if you're thinking about a route? So oftentimes on my MRI um, order, I will write exactly what I'm looking for. I have a uh, musculoskeletal radiologist who's very skilled in in MRI reviews that I have requested read my MRIs, um, and we communicate very frequently via text message. So he will often um, text me. I will text him if I'm worried, and we'll discuss it. Um, I always get a 3T MRI. I'm not sure what your guys' approach to that is, but I just don't like the 1.5s. I feel like, especially for root quality, it's just not... Um, good enough, especially when it's already fuzzy. Um, so I usually get the 3T MRI and I usually discuss it with a musculoskeletal radiologist at the facility that I'm sending for my MRIs. So Ashley, you mentioned when you have a high concern for root tear, what, what makes you have that high concern usually? I feel like they all happen in the same patients. They're like between 50 and 60. They're slightly overweight, um, and they were doing something that's like moderate energy, like stepped off a curb, was in their backyard, someone was running across the street to make up before the light turned, and they feel a pop in the back of the knee with onset of pain, and they come in on crutches. It's like the same, I feel like it's the same, I can almost predict they're going to have a root tear based on their story. So I do, I tell them that I want to get an MRI sooner rather than later, because I just want to know about the diagnosis. Um, And this is actually a question I had earlier, we were kind of talking about indications for urgent surgery versus not, you know, I'm always on the fence. Do you try some non-operative treatment with these patients where you know it's a root tear um, or do you take them right to to surgery? Um, But so I'm sending them for an MRI timely because I'm thinking if they don't do well, I want to give them the best chance of repair and that would be more timely surgery. Um, But how do you approach that? Like if you have someone that comes in with a traumatic injury to their root, um, are you, are you ever saying, let's go right to surgery? Do you try some conservative treatment first or, or is it more just kind of going towards a repair? So I think 
a lot of that probably depends on the patient, their activity level, and their their uh, radiographs. Uh, again, going back to you know, if they really don't have any early osteoarthritis and they're pretty active, then, you know, they're going to probably need a root repair. Um, end of story. If they're not very active um, and they have a fair amount of arthritis, then I would potentially still give them a trial of non-operative management. And to be quite honest, the majority of them want to avoid surgery at all costs if they can. So it becomes much of a mutual decision. Yeah, that's true. That um, the population that I saw it in a lot this winter, um, which was different, you know, I like certainly you see, you know, I think Ashley has your saying that sort of population, but then um, we saw a handful of like snowboarders who landed in hyperextension, like we're doing some sort of jump, you know, not like half pipe type stuff, but just like a little bit of a jump and landed in a flat hyperextension and had a pop in the back. So those were like the ones with the full avulsion, the one um, I was talking about the plateau fracture. Um, but as a hyperextension injury, which I wasn't kind of expecting, but that was, you know, I was more thinking when I sent them for an MRI of something like a plateau fracture or a chondral, um, but just of interest, you know, kind of. Catherine, but, in that population, um, how did you manage them? I assume because they were snowboarding, they're younger and more active. So did you move towards a timely repair in, in most of those patients? Yeah, I didn't try not op with any of those. Um, so if I'm thinking through the ones in my mind, they were all full avulsions as well. Um, so young, under 30, full avulsions, not a partial, uh, but certainly people who are hoping to get back to mountain type aggressive stuff. Yeah. I feel like you more than anyone have that um, physiologic versus chronologic discussion <laughs> in Colorado. Like your 65 is not my 65 <laughs> out, well, out where mean, you practice. Yeah, actually saying that like last week I had an ACL reconstruction that she was 60 and her cartilage was great. Like she was, you know, young, like physiologically very active, um, skis very hard on the mountain. You know, I had no difficulty getting in her compartments, you know, like it just, I saw her post-op day one and, you know, she's sort of, do I need these crutches? You know, like very, it's a very different <laughs> kind of woman. So right. <laughs> she was quite <laughs> I have a feeling she's going to do very well, Catherine. <laughs> how, how are you doing your root repairs, Catherine, especially in these patients who are going to stress them a fair amount back out on the slopes? So I've been doing, you know, transtibial and I've been doing button and I've been curious about um, kind of trying the swivel lock. So I was excited to hear you both are doing that. Um, but I think just uh, my exposure was really button fixation and, you know, I'm comfortable with that. But I also sometimes feel like it can be a little finicky with getting your tension and, you know, the swivel lock, I think gives you a little bit um, more there. So um, maybe something I'll be, you know, kind of starting to look at as well. Um, and I then I have to say though, if, if compartment wise, if I have a lot of difficulty getting in there, if it, I, I had a gentleman who was, um, you know, ex-military had already had four surgeries in his knee very difficult to get back there, but he was only 40 with an almost full root tear. Um, and with him, you know, I did a side by side because it just getting the guide, I knew I'd really be trashing up his cartilage to pass through there, but I also didn't want to treat it non-operatively, um, you know, given his age and I knew he would still be aggressive. So that, that's a tricky one. And I think Dragu's article talks about you know, he followed the outcomes on those and they still seem to do quite well. But obviously, ideally, I would prefer to do the transtibial. 
I found that article really interesting that they added that posterior capsule stitch. Like I feel like even in transtibial, um, you could do that. And I feel like that tissue quality, even in the most pristine cases, especially if it's a generative route, is always questionable. And I found that to be a really great idea, just to tack an all inside to the posterior capsule just to reinforce the repair. Um, I think I'll definitely be trying that in my next root repair. I just think I, you'll sleep better at night having that additional fixation. I was one more thing on the roots. I was just going to say it's, it's interesting because when we see these root tears, we worry about meniscal extrusion. And so when we repair the root, we're trying to pull that meniscus back in. So there's not the extrusion, but if we tension it to the capsule, are we helping or hurting? And I don't know the answer. It does make sense with giving it some more stability, but are we also pulling it in the direction that we are trying to avoid? Sometimes the capsule's right there in some patients, and sometimes there's a little bit of space when you're way back at that root to get to the capsule. Mm. So. You could almost be pulling on your repair by doing that, by trying to you know, tension it all the way back there. So good point. Yeah, I think that's an awesome point. Thanks for listening to episode five of the Sports Talks podcast. We hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as we did. On the next episode, we'll continue our conversation on surgical treatment, shifting our focus to bucket handle meniscus tears before wrapping up with a discussion on post-op rehab. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review. You can also reach us by email at thesportsdocspod at gmail.com or find us at Instagram at thesportsdocspod. 